Hi, everybody. Welcome to Vox Tablet. I'm your host, Sarah Ivory. I've got a little cold, forgive me. But today we've got a very special episode, and I wouldn't miss it. Archie Bunker, George Jefferson, Mary Hartman, those are just a few of the legendary characters Norman Lear created. Lear, who's 92 years old, got his start in entertainment, writing bits for showmen like Danny Thomas and Jerry Lewis. He was a natural at comedy and before long was directing movies and creating groundbreaking television shows that took on social and political issues of the day. Topics like abortion, racism, rape, abuse, interracial marriage, single motherhood, alcoholism, poverty. Norman Lear has written a memoir now. It's called Even This I Get to Experience, and we are so lucky to have him with us on Vox Tablet to talk about it. Norman Lear, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Norman Lear. It's lucky to be here. (laughs) You have created so many memorable families, the Bunkers, the Jeffersons, the Drummonds from different strokes. Tell us a little bit about the family you grew up in. Where did you come from? I came from, I was born in New Haven, raised largely in Hartford, and, uh, It's hard to be a human being, I've learned in the course of writing this book. And uh, my hardship began when my father went to jail. I was nine years old. He was uh, lost for me for three years. And uh, I lived with uncles and and grandparents, my mother and uh, sister, elsewhere. And it was an immigrant family. Well, my father was born here. My mother was born in Russia, came here when she was six. Was it a Yiddish-speaking household to some extent? My grandmother's parents spoke both English and Yiddish, but uh, when they were alone, that was largely Yiddish. And I lived with them, so I heard an awful lot of Yiddish. Your dad, Herman, was very much a larger-than-life figure. I mean, he looms throughout the book, and he loomed even when he wasn't around. Uh, And you say that, to some extent, he was an inspiration for Archie Bunker from Uh all in the family. How so? Well, he he was an inspiration for Archie in the sense that uh, I was the laziest white kid he ever met. And when I uh, would scream at him, why are you putting down an entire race of people to call your son or lazy? And he would say, that's not what I'm doing, and you're the dumbest white kid I ever met. So to that extent, uh, he didn't understand racial issues or, uh, you know, he talked to everybody as if they were the same person not understanding that this person might be far more educated than he, know, know more about a certain subject. But he was also quite uh, warm at times. I mean, you tell this fabulous story about how he helped you out in a jam on your way to the prom. Yeah. I wonder if you can share that with our listeners. Well, he was a great, uh, I used to think of him as a grandstand player. He did some wonderful things. I, I was going to uh, my junior prom and uh, picking up my girlfriend at a certain hour in a in a Ford uh, a T model that a friend and I paid twenty bucks for or something, and uh, uh, my father said, "No, I'm going to get home in time for you to take." Uh, I think he was driving a Studebaker. He's going to bring it home and give me his new car. And at three o'clock, three fifteen, three thirty, four o'clock, he's not home. With tears in my eyes, I go pick up my girl in West Hartford, Connecticut in my uh, Ford T-Model, and I'm on the way through Waterbury, Meriden, New Haven, on the parkway to uh, the Westport Playhouse, 
when there's a honk, 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 my father's in, in back of me as fast as he can with the Studebaker, changes cars with me. I take my girl finally in his car, and he drives home in the Ford. It is a grand gesture. What about your mom or any of the characters that you came up with inspired by her? It's hard, not solely, because I never, uh, I, I haven't dealt with a full-fledged narcissist. I, I can't think of one that's on the air right now. She was, uh, life was a mirror. All she saw was herself. Is there a particular episode that uh, sticks out in your mind about her that sort of you can share with us, an anecdote that really illustrates that? Oh, I called her one day to tell her that uh, it was a Sunday morning. I got a, a, a call from a good friend who had just become president of the TB Academy. And on Saturday, they had had a meeting and decided they were going to start a Hall of Fame. And Norman, he said, these are the first inductees. You mustn't tell anybody. Um William Paley, who started CBS, David Sarnoff, who started NBC, Edward R. Murrow, the, perhaps the greatest of the foreign correspondents, uh, Milton Burrow, Lucille Ball, uh, and you. And I called my mother as fast as I could, despite his cautioning me not to share it, <laughs> in Bridgeport, Connecticut. And I said, Mom, they're starting a Hall of Fame, and these are the first inductees. I mentioned the names and me. And she said, listen, if that's what they want to do, who am I to say? <laughs> that was her mother. I could count on her for that kind of reaction every time. It's a kind of Yiddish humor. It's a sort of undermining uh, kind of belt to the underside. I've dined out on it a lot. Open any number of speeches with it. Audience roars with uh, identification. You got your start writing for uh, Danny Thomas, as I mentioned, and the bit that you wrote for him was very Jewish. It invoked Yiddish. It was really a Bart yeah, yeah. kind of joke. But this kind of humor and this kind of storytelling isn't sort of the direction you went into after that. Where, did you make a conscious choice to kind of leave that or uh, sort of how did it, how did you sort of jump from the kind of – uh, writing for Danny Thomas, raconteurship, to uh, these to situation comedies. Well, I was writing in the first instance. I was writing for a personality who was well established, and I wrote what he could do. Uh, second, uh, you know, when I started to do situation comedy, the same thing with Martin and Lewis, with Dean Martin and Terry Lewis. I wrote what they could do, but I still attitude is what you're talking about. A lot of the work that we did for uh, Martin and Lewis had a certain attitude uh, and something to say. But when I was doing situation comedy, writing and casting my own characters, 100% my own characters, uh, I'm a, I see the humor in, uh, in life and I enjoy writing from inside uh, that personality, that life, that difficulty, and finding the humor in it. So I was writing for myself uh, after writing for personalities. Often when critics discuss your work, they note how much you dealt with issues of race and prejudice, which you did. Uh, you point out that in the book that with Good Times, you were actually the first person to make an African-American family the main characters of a TV show why was uh, engaging racial issues such a critical point for you? Well, I'd done uh, 
all in a family, and Maud. They were about white families. Uh, on Maud, there was a wonderful actress, Esther Roll, who in the role of Florida was very clear that she could leave the uh, minors, as I used to think of it, and enter the majors. And along those lines, we introduced at some point uh, the actor who would play her husband, should that occur, John Amos. And uh, as soon as the network saw that husband and wife, we began to talk about the possibility of their doing, being a family in another show. So it grew organically out of that and out of a desire. Uh, it was clear there were no black families on television. And we were, we were reflecting American life, and it was just a natural flow. When I look at the list of shows, though, things like Good Times or other shows you created, like The Facts of Life about girls in a boarding school or uh, Who's the Boss about a single mom and her sort of hired handyman who helps her out or The Jeffersons about a black family that does quite well uh, financially and moves to the Upper East Side, it strikes me that actually race isn't the thing that you really home in on, but uh, class and the haves and have-nots in America. Was that something that was important to you to get at? Yeah, it was very important to me. I was a kid of the Depression. And um, as I remember it, it's almost Yiddish. The way my grandparents' generation talked about men in the Depression and families as a good provider. I, it's a sound that, you know, is so loud in my head. I hear so clearly from Tanta Jenny, Tanta Sonia, because... Uh, so many men and families had gone belly up in the Depression, and somebody who was do, doing well enough to sustain a family was a good provider. That phrase became a central phrase in my own life. I couldn't wait till I thought myself a good provider. And I remember clearly when I did. I'll just leap ahead for a moment Please. to say the time arrived when... Uh, well, I was flying cross-country for work uh, constantly from L.A. to New York. And uh, I used to get to the airport a half hour earlier to buy $10,000 worth of flight insurance. That was the max. And uh, one day I woke up and I th realized, wait a minute, maybe I don't need the flight insurance. I'm covered. I so clearly remember feeling, you know, taking a deep, satisfied breath and thinking, I'm a good provider. <laughs> so uh, nothing touched me more than the handful of stories we did on All in the Family where Archie was concerned uh, about whether he was going to keep working, where he had to take a second job and became a cab driver at night. Uh, and the same thing with Good Times where uh, the John Amos character had to take a third job to exist, to support a family. Nothing touch, to this day will touch me more than that. What's he going to do, Mama? He's getting his pool cue. Dino Mike! <laughs> yeah, it's been years since I used this thing, but I still shoot a pretty good stick. James, I don't want you hustling no pool, you promise. And I also promise to take care of my family. Now, if anybody here knows another way I can raise the rent by 5 o'clock, I'll lay this up. I know they got emergency funds down at the welfare, Florida. No good, Malona. I ain't taking no handouts. James, the Lord don't want you hustling no pool. Yeah, well, I'm going to have to work out understanding with the Lord some other time, Florida. Now, move. 
heavy themes aside that you dealt with on the shows, they were essentially comedies. Was there a kind of litmus test that you used to decide if something was funny or not? A litmus test to decide whether anything was funny? Or how funny? did you determine if, if something would be funny? I mean, you're dealing with such dark I found topics. myself laughing. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's your you test. Know, the, the, uh, now, I mean, what you, you learn when you're nine years old, your father's hauled off to prison, the house is flooded with people who are buying the furniture because your mother can't afford to stay or doesn't wish to stay in the same home while he's in prison for three years. Uh, you're going to go off to live with an uncle while she takes her your sister and lives elsewhere. And some fatuous fool puts his hand on your shoulder. And you're nine years old, says you're the man of the house now. I mean, you better have a sense of humor to, to get through that. And and know you're living in a world where uh, the human condition has its comedy in the greatest of tragedy. Let's talk about TV today for a moment. Uh, the show Transparent was released on Amazon this fall. And if anybody out there is listening and has no idea what that is, that seems crazy to me. But anyway, it's a series that stars Jeffrey Tambor. He plays a man transitioning to become a woman. Uh, named Mora. She's got grown kids. She lives in Los Angeles. She's Jewish. The show is, in fact, incredibly Jewish with profound uh, biblical invocations. And I read somewhere that you're a transparent fan. I'd love to know what you like about it. I'm looking at an actor in the person of Jeffrey Tambor, who is walking a line between hilarity and heartbreak, as fine a line as I've ever seen. And uh, it's he's brilliant. He's just brilliant, uh, as are the other players. And Jules Soloway, who writes and directs, I think, this show. It's just great, great drama. In the shows that you made, by and large, the characters are not Jewish. Uh, but they do so often deal with marginalized groups or groups that have suffered prejudice. And I wonder if the fact that Jewish characters are not generally the main characters in your show reflects what was possible to put on TV back then or just wasn't something that was interesting to you particularly? I certainly wasn't the former. I, I didn't sense that there would be any problem. But we did shows that, in, you know, involved Jewish themes. When Archie wanted a lawyer, it had to be a Jew. <laughs> Listen, get me the yellow pages, will you? The yellow pages? But why not, why not somebody you know? Why a stranger? Because sometimes strangers is best. They don't get too close to you, you know what I mean? No. Will you get me the yellow pages? <laughs> you know what he means, Mom? No. Let's see here. Well, there's like this ten pages of lawyers here. Well, where should I start? At the beginning? No, start at the middle and read out sideways. <laughs> Certainly start at the beginning. Well, there's ten thousand names here. I'll, I'll skip around. It'll be fast. All right, let's see. Uh, W.B. Adams, Adams and Brenner, Burton and Fitzallen, Cohn and Ginsburg. Cohn and Ginsburg. What? Cohn and... Just go on reading that, will you? Go on. Go on. Okay. Uh, Evans and Monaghan, Franklin and Powell, Lockman, Shapiro and Stone. Lockman, Shapiro and Stone. What? I'm just thinking, will you read on? All right. Harris and Whipple, Johnson and Smith... McDonald and Shelby, Rabinowitz, Rabinowitz, and Rabinowitz. Rabinowitz, Rabinowitz. What was the third name? 
Rabinowitz. Yeah. How do they sound to you? Jewish. Very Jewish. So what has their religion got to do with it? That's what we want to know. Oh, listen, Mr. Big Liberal. You brought up their religion, not me. If they're good lawyers for all I care, it could be chinks. Do you believe him? He actually thinks because they're Jewish, they're, they're smarter, they're shrewder. Well, he... Mom, he's so prejudiced. What are we going to do? Get him a Rabinowitz. <laughs> You had on Maude a very famous two-part episode that dealt with abortion in which Maude finds herself pregnant at a fairly advanced age. I think she's approaching 50, if not 50 already, and she has to decide whether or not to go through with this pregnancy or to have an abortion, and she chooses to do the latter, and it's quite uh, wrenching. It feels like uh, a topic that so many shows today wouldn't even go near. And I wonder, uh, do you think in some ways the climate today is less receptive to kind of frank discussions of these matters on TV than it was when you were making television? Well, that's what I understand to be true from the uh, guys and gals who are currently showrunners. They tell me they have great difficulty going anywhere near subjects like abortion or impotence or, you know, uh, some very common problems in family life. Uh, So I hear that, which is (laughs) strange and funny, you know, because they'll tell me, you know, I'm sitting in a room with somebody and say, but look at that. This was 40 years ago that was done. What do you mean we can't do it? But... uh, it remains true nonetheless. But, I mean, you definitely did face opposition for some of the things that you wanted to uh, broach on your shows. And you basically said, well, if you don't air this episode as I want it to be aired, I'm splitting. Well, I did because I knew that I wouldn't have a show or a show I cared about if I gave in. It isn't that we uh, were not moved to change things by a good argument. Or, or a way to do it that satisfied the the, uh, the network and made it better. I mean, they caused us to make a lot of changes. But when something was flat out silly and they were concerned about getting 20 letters two weeks later, because uh, that's all these things ever really amounted to, to lose a little phrase uh, that they found, you know, that they had to reject... Uh, was not the problem. It wasn't the show could exist without the phrase, but to lose that when it was say flat out silly uh, was to know there'd be ninety, you know, following every week. There would be another one, and so they were little fights that represented big wars. But you didn't have opposition, particularly on thematic issues. I mean, nobody ever said to you, "Hey, don't touch." Rape? Don't touch child oh, abuse? Yeah, oh, yes. Don't touch rape. Don't touch impotence. Certainly you don't touch abortion. No, of course it was uh, – they didn't want that. Which of your shows do you think has the biggest impact uh, regarding where we are as a culture now? Well, my first thought is Mary Hartman. Yeah, Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman was the one show that had a uh, a theme that – we never let go of it. The idea was to examine the impact of the media on the average American housewife. And in episode one, she's holding onto a can of floor wax 
There are sirens in the air. A neighbor comes running in to tell her that a family of five, their two goats and eight chickens, have been slaughtered around the corner. And she is consumed with the waxy yellow buildup she thinks she's seeing in a can that promises it can't be true. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the opening show. No laugh track. Five episodes a week. I mean, it played for some people as outrageous comedy. It played for some people as drama. At the end of the uh, several hundred episodes later, she is driven crazy on the David Susskind talk show by three media psychology professionals who drive her out of her mind, one of the great acting pieces. And then in a subsequent show, we see her sitting in a television set. Somebody is fooling with something on the top of it, and she says, is that what I think it is? And a nurse says, yes, it is, Mary. And as she's looking at this, staring at the television set, other inmates, are, <laughs> they're all a little disturbed, crowd around her as she says, I can't believe that finally I, Mary Hartman, am a member of a Nielsen family. And it's pretty near the end of the series when that goes off. So those several hundred episodes tell everything about media impact. Uh, that's been one of the major themes in all my work. The sort of media consumption and sort of the detachment from your personhood. Yes, I mean, where we are being led uh, by media... And you can't, I can't anyway, think of media without thinking about the people who are responsible for media, which are all the major companies across, uh, I started to say across America, now they're so international, across the globe. Um, yeah. I mean, we're, we're, we could be led better. You write in the book that you've lived so many lives. You were a young boy starving for attention. You were a popular high school student. You were in the Army in Italy. You worked as a comedy writer, a TV writer, a filmmaker, an activist. How do you describe the life you're living now? The best. (laughs) (laughs) It's the best one because it's the one that's occurring at this moment. I look at you at your microphone sitting here opposite me, and even this I get to experience. And I'm looking forward to lunch. Even that I will get to experience. (laughs) Norman Lear, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. I couldn't have enjoyed it more. Norman Lear is a writer, producer, director, and author. His memoir is called Even This I Get to Experience, and it's out from Penguin Press. Go get yourself a copy. You can follow him on Facebook and on Twitter. His handle is at the Norman Lear. Go do it. We'd love for you to share our podcast with everybody you know. Go for it, and feel free to make a comment on our page on tabletmag.com or on Facebook. Vox Tablet is produced by Julie Subrin. I am Sarah Ivory. We thank you so much for listening.